fighting for freedom every day. Republicans right now, the conservatives, which unfortunately, this is what we have to do every time, even after a vote where people are sick and tired of the establishment, they're sick and tired of the squeezy, middle-of-the-road, squishy kind of Republican rhinos, and we vote conservatives in, then we have to fight tooth and nail in D.C. to actually be heard within the Republican Party. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into it. It is a pre-Friday celebration, greatest day of the entire week, my friends. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. You still have some time to do your awesomeness throughout the week. And you can get ready for another weekend to take a breath. And can you imagine, we are one week away from Thanksgiving. That, I think, should be fearful in the eyes of many because I don't know how many are actually prepared for the holiday season. But they are here, whether we want them to be or not. Welcome into the show. This is the Voice Series that I am Andy Hoosier, broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country, multiple radio stations and TV, live streaming, podcasting, However you watch or listen to the show, it's always great to have you along for the ride. Your Millennial General reporting for duty like we do every single day. Programming note for you, we have a really fun guest coming on the program. Well, we do today too, but another guest that's coming on. I couldn't find the time to, uh, to play it today or tomorrow. So on our syndicated show on Saturday over the weekend, wherever you may to fill in the blank whenever that may air in your local market, for our nationally syndicated broadcast of this uh, weekend review Voice of Reason show, we will have the rock star herself on with the new book of MTG is the name of the book, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She will be joining us on this program, and we will have a blast at chatting with her. I am so looking forward to it. We have so many different things we need to cover and talk about with her as she has her brand new book, which you can find at mtgbook.com. A little plug there, but we'll do that again over the weekend for our syndicated show. You are not going to want to miss that because it is going to be fantastic. Today, we also have another fun guest as well, uh, Richard Vogg. We've had him on the show before. He is author of the book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. We'll talk about the extension of the continuing resolution. Both chambers have uh, passed that. So we will be funding the government at current spending levels until... Well, 2024, but two, the two-tiered system of funding portions of the government until January, other portions of the government until February, as the House of Representatives continues to work on the appropriations process. You know my thoughts on it. Republicans are not happy about it. I am willing to give it a chance, if and only if we come out of this at the end of the day better, with you know actually seeing numbers smaller than what they were before. Not just slowing the growth of them, being like, oh, we did it. No, I want to see the numbers dramatically smaller than what they were. And we've passed some amazing appropriation bills, like bills that have cut certain agencies by like 30 to 40%, which is a great start. Still got a long ways to go, but uh, we'll talk some more about that coming up later on at the bottom of the hour. Other stuff we have to get to today, <laughs> I am. you ever have those moments, and I love these moments, because as you know on this radio program, we try to go a little bit deeper. We try to un, uh, peel off the layers of the onion and try to get to core principles. We talk about the flavor of the day, the hot topic of the day, the current event of the day. We talk about them, but we try to relate them to deeper issues, which is really the whole point of this program, talking about it in a commonsensical, reasonable, rational way. And that's what we do. And we try to break down what the core meaning is of certain issues, because in conservatism, every issue can relate down to our, our, our core fundamental values that we have as an idea, not necessarily as a party, but as an idea. And sometimes when you strike that core value, there are two responses that people have. Either they absolutely lose their mind because they go into kind of fight or flight mode and defense mode because you struck a chord with them and it hit a core value to them 
and struck their foundation of what they have built their entire livelihood on. Or that's either one response. They either go into that fight or flight mode or they completely just blank out and go into an alternate universe and have no clue what you're talking about. And it's hilarious to watch because that, for me personally, that's what I like to do. I like to challenge people. And if you can defend your position that you stand on, whether it's political, whether it's theological or religious, whether it's uh, just, you know, your favorite sports team, if you can defend it, then I'll respect you. If you just are going along with it because you have no core values, but that's what everybody's going along with, then I don't respect you because you haven't put a whole lot of thought into what you believe and how you live your life based on those core fundamental values. There, The reason I bring this up is there was an interview that Vice President Kamala Harris did on our What's Trending story of the day. What's trending <laughs> today? This She sat down with an interviewer from the New York Times, and it was about a 45-minute audio bit. You can find it and listen to the entire 45-minute audio bit on the New York Times website. I don't know why would you would want to because just listening to her voice for a long stint of time makes my ears bleed a little bit. So I had a hard time, but she was challenged with a core value question. And she threw it off as, I didn't understand the question. They had no clue how to respond to it whatsoever. And the question from whoever it was, don't remember his name, from the New York Times, the question was, was essentially, were you chosen to be vice president of the United States under the Biden administration because you were a black woman, because those that were advising Joe Biden at the time of the election wanted a black woman to appeal to that demographic in the nation? And did you get chosen, essentially, based on the color of your skin and your gender or because of your qualifications? A core fundamental value of the Democrat Party of identity politics that it's not about the person. It's not about what they bring to the table. It's not about their qualifications, but it's truly only based at the surface level thinking that low IQ of we're just going to go skin deep literally to make our decisions because that's what appeals to certain voters and that's what we want to do. And she didn't know how to respond to the issue. Another thing in 2020 was obviously those things were happening at the time that Biden was making his selection for running May. And I was reading stories at that time that was basically saying very clearly, you know, the Times story, Harry Reid says that you know, he came to the decision that he needed to choose a black woman. While that is obviously about you, that's not necessarily you personally, but your identity. How should it matter, does it matter, that that narrative has existed, that Biden needed to choose someone or who, who was a black person? And should it matter? Okay, uh, before, before we get to the response, I, I'm surprised, number one, that a Democrat progressive at the New York Times would actually ask a question like that. Does it matter? that he wanted a black woman and therefore he chose you, does it matter? And is that a lingering message within the Biden administration that he wanted a black woman, doesn't care who it is, but then you all of a sudden came up? Does that matter? I don't think I understand your question. I'm saying, <laughs> does it matter that that kind of narrative around Biden needed to choose a black woman as a running mate still exists and has hovered over that selection? Or is I, it, it happened. <laughs> I don't I don't think I understand you. I, I honestly don't understand your question. I'm yeah, here's here's the question. Here's the question. Did you get chosen based on your qualifications or because you're a black woman and you fit a certain demographic and checked off the boxes that the Democrats wanted to win an election? How hard is that? How hard is that? The fundamental core principles 
of the Democrat Party. We don't give a rip about who you are and what you've done in your career. We only care that you fit a certain identity, that you fit in a certain box, and that you check off the check marks that we need in order for you to appeal to the really fringe group of people. We need to make sure you're a woman. We need to make sure that you're black. We need to make sure, well, you're not gay, so you didn't quite check that one. Here in Kansas, we have a congresswoman, Congresswoman Sharice Davids from the 3rd District, and that's how she won her election, literally. And she's part of the B-Squad, part of the AOC types, but she keeps her head low because she's in a very purple district in Kansas. But she got elected because she's a woman. She got elected because she is gay. She got elected because she is a boxer or was a boxer being gay, so she's a very strong feminine woman, and because she's Native American and lived on a reservation. She's a minority, she's gay, and she's a woman in a red state. Boom, she checked the boxes, and that's how she won her election. It's all about the identity politics. It has nothing to do with how smart you are, what your history is, what your background is. It has nothing to do with any of that. Kamala Harris, is that an issue with you? I'm saying, did that put Has you it in lingered? It, yeah, did that He put, chose a black woman. That <laughs> woman is me. <laughs> so I, I don't know that anything lingers about what he should choose. He has chosen. He asked me to join him on the ticket. I guess I was... I can move on. <laughs> I'll just move on. I don't know how to rephrase this any longer. Man, when, again, when you strike that core value, there's only two responses that you'll get from someone. And it's on either side of the aisle. It's just human nature. You'll get two responses. When you challenge a core principle of how they've built their foundation on their life is either they get very defensive and angry because how dare you challenge anything that's a core value to me or you get that blank stare of I don't understand. Imagine you were chosen based on your gender and your skin color and it's never even crossed your mind that it wasn't because of how smart you were, how personable you were. You got to remember, she left the presidential race with less than 3% in the approval ratings. She literally called Joe Biden a racist on the debate stage because of some of the policies that he had advocated for in this past. As a politician, she called him a racist on the debate stage for the president, and she gets chosen for the VP-ness and said, well, it was just a debate. Doesn't really matter that I called him a racist. Not a big deal. But I'm a black woman, and he chose me. So, ha! Huh. She almost admits that, yeah, you know what? I have nothing to bring to the table except for my gender and my skin color. <laughs> it's, it's wild, man. It's hilarious to listen to because she, I don't think that's ever crossed her mind. I don't think she's ever sat back and thought about it. Or she did, and she just doesn't care. It's wild. Speaking of core values, what's one of the core values that, on the Republican side, flipping gears here real quick, what's one of the core values that we have on the as, as a conservative, not necessarily a Republican, but as a conservative, what's one of the core values that we hold on to on our side? One of those core values is uh, I talk about my three pillars of conservatism, life to li right to life, liberty, and private property. And that liberty means that you have the right to freely believe and express yourself on however you want to. And as conservatives, we don't do the top-down marching orders, the authoritarian marching orders from the Democrats. We all believe in the same thing. We all go through the same talking points. Republicans don't do that. That's why you have conservative pundits, talk radio hosts, TV hosts, podcasting hosts that all have different opinions and different views on so many different issues. Well, apparently that's not the case in some different media outlets, as I'm sure you've been following the ongoing feud between the Daily Wire with Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro. Those that have not been following it is quite intriguing, as Ben Shapiro, obviously a Jewish individual, has been all about supporting Israel very strongly, very staunchly, completely respect that. I do as well. And Candace Owens has then been taking the slot and position of 
we support them, but we shouldn't be funding them. We should be kind of taking the Vivek Ramaswamy approach of we need to be taking care of America first and focusing on taking care of our issues as opposed to continuously sending money overseas. She works for the Daily Wire with her show. That's under the umbrella of the Daily Wire, which was co-founded by Ben Shapiro, although he does not have essentially control over the entire company any longer because he's so focused on doing his projects and doing his programs. Well, apparently Ben Shapiro got caught on speaking at an event, a private event, and got caught with a video footage or cell phone footage that was uploaded that went viral attacking Candace Owens pretty viciously for her stance on how she's approaching this Israeli thing. Yes, uh, the question is about Candace Owens. I think her behavior during this is disgraceful. Without a doubt. I can't pause that. Yeah. 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 Has been ridiculous. It's not post sophistication, it's ridiculous. Everybody can see the moves that she's making and the things that she's saying, and I find them disreputable. Absolutely disgraceful is what he called her, that her position on the Israeli thing is absolutely disgraceful and that she'd be ashamed of herself for uh, having such a lack of knowledge on these types of issues. Now, uh, again, I preface by saying that one of the beauties of conservatism and one of the pillars that we have is the fact that we don't get our marching orders and all believe the exact same thing or believe it at least in the exact same way. And that we have the beauty of having a diverse realm of opinions, which is what makes conservatism so great. Is that the way that Ben Shapiro should be handling an issue with Candace Owens? She did respond as she was on Tucker Carlson's uh, Carlson on X show on the Tweety, which we'll play that when we come back here. But is Ben Shapiro going a little bit too far attacking Candace Owens by calling her a disgrace and advocating for her to quit her show on The Daily Wire? This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. It looks like maybe he didn't know he was being reported. It looks yes. like it was some sort of a private event. I got no clarity on the issue that he was particularly speaking on. And in what was said, I also, I can't respond to it beyond what he's saying because it's just ad hominem attacks. I don't know. Yeah, because it's not, you know, we disagree or, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think she's correct or maybe she doesn't know what she's talking about. It's absolutely disgraceful. Yeah, exactly. And so I can't respond to it on a level of intellect because there, there's nothing that he has expressed, in that, at least in that short clip, that he fundamentally disagrees with in terms of what I said. But I will say that I'm not going to respond with the same ad hominem attacks. Yes. I don't think it helps further discussion. And it, if I, that was me that was caught on a video saying that about colleagues that I work with. I would be embarrassed. I would. So I think that the video speaks more to Ben's character than it speaks to mine. All right, that was Candace Owens on Tucker Carlson on Tucker on X, the, with the latest episode that came out just a day or so ago, uh, talking about this issue after Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire calling out Candace Owens, who, by the way, does her show on The Daily Wire as extremely disgraceful for her stance on Israel. Now, as I mentioned one of the beauties of conservatism is the fact that we have a vast view of issues. As long as we all stand for the core principles, we can apply those principles to the current events and flavor of the day in a different manner. And uh, looking at it, trying to be the third-party objective here, standing back and trying to be the Zen guy in this conversation in a Zen manner, 
Obviously, Ben Shapiro is very emotional about Israel. He's a Jewish individual himself. He's got a lot of connection to that. So therefore, he's going to be very emotional and staunch. We need to do anything possible in order to stand with Israel, whatever that may be. Military-wise, financial-wise, doesn't really matter. We need to be 110% both feet in, in to support this. And I agree with that. And I understand that position. And I agree. Israel is a great uh, ally. Israel is a great friend. It is the only Jewish state in the world, and we support the Jewish community. We support them wholeheartedly, and I, I completely agree. Candace Owens, while she supports Israel, says that we shouldn't be spending money in overseas conflicts, that we should be withholding funding from Ukraine, that we should be withholding funding from Israel because it's not our place. We need to be focusing on the travesties going on here in the United States. I also agree. Makes sense as well. So I understand both sides of the argument, and both sides of the argument, by the way, are very conservative stances to take, that we want to have America first, we also want to support our allies. So trying to find that happy middle ground is a very difficult stance to make. Personally, I think that we should help financially a little bit with Israel. We should be standing with them and doing whatever it takes to keep them uh, safe, healthy, and strong to battle through this ridiculousness. I took that stance as well with Ukraine early on. And then after about the first $100 billion that went out to the nation, that's when I started questioning, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Totally understood why we did it. Understand that Russia is a crazy communist uh, nation with Vladimir Putin who wants to reunite the Soviet Union and try and bring that back. Totally understand we need to stop him and not allow him to take over. But after $100 billion and with more money wanting to be sent there with a guy who just washes it out, and asks for more money while he's living the life of luxury, maybe we should start questioning these motives and wondering why we continue to just blindly send money over there. Is the stance that I take personally. What conservatives have to do, number one, is stop bickering amongst ourselves and trying to say that we're the right-way fighter, and if you don't support it, then you're not the true conservative and you're not doing it the right way. We have to get away from that mindset. And we have to get back to the idea that we have core principles And that we as conservatives who have the right to think freely, that don't get our marching orders from the RNC like the Democrats do, that don't get the authoritarian argument that we all have to stand in unison for all issues, we have to be able to take the core principles that we believe in, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to private property, and be able to apply that on the flavor of the day in our own manner, in our own opinion. And we have to be able to come together to express the fact that we have diversity in thought within the conservative movement, and that is a good thing. That is what allows us to expand our ideas, to challenge our ideas, and be able to find the happy middle ground within conservatism to move forward as a whole under something that we call the Republican Party. But this stuff? Good Lord, stop the bickering. Let's move on, shall we? This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Reason meets radio. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed, it is. Welcome back into it. Always wonderful to have you along for the ride, especially for our pre Friday celebration. It's time for us to carpe diem all over this place. It's what we do, baby. That's right. Yeah. You like it. Yeah, you know you like it. We got a lot to talk about. I want to shift gears a little bit, though. As you know, just yesterday, as of yesterday evening, the Both chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, have approved their extension of the continuing resolution. Now, a little bit different, though. The two-tiered system 
that Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has proposed. Some of the programs going until the middle of January, others going until early portion of February as we continue to work on this appropriations process. Now, I want to remind you that we have not passed an actual appropriations full-on federal budget since, like, before the Obama administration. So there is that. It's been a while, and we forgot what it's actually like. I told you when I first started in radio, I interned for, when I was at the broadcasting school, I interned for one of my heroes in talk radio. I interned for Mike Rosen. He was the talk show host out of 850 KOA in Denver, Colorado. And I had listened to him through high school, all the way through college, even though I was in college in Ohio. And when I came back to Colorado to go to the broadcasting school, I needed an internship. And I heard that he was looking for an intern. He had an opening. And he was my idol. Like, he was up there with, like, Rush Limbaugh. He was a big deal. In fact, he had filled in for Rush Limbaugh a couple of times. I got the honor to fill in for him. His internships usually lasted three months. I got to do it for six months during my entire schooling. Best experience I ever had. And the reason I bring him up is because prior to his radio career, he was one of the guys that helped run the finance department for the Pentagon. So he was a number cruncher. And I'll never forget, I still have it. I have it in my home studio at the Hoosier Media Network. The, I have the entire binder because at that time we actually still had a federal budget every year. And what he would do is he would take the federal budget and break it down into categories, break it down into agencies and departments, into discretionary funding, mandatory funding for the federal government, and would have these charts that uh, that would go all the way back to like the 50s when he started collecting this data and would have flow charts of every trend of the federal government's budget spending up until that point. And he gave me a copy of this in this binder. And the spending is absolutely insane. And if you want to look at real numbers, those are real numbers that they cannot fabricate, they cannot manipulate, they cannot change. These are the real numbers. And now we've taken that and we've doubled it and we've tripled it and we've quadrupled it to the point now we don't even know what's going on. Because at that point, you could only have the GDP, uh, the, the uh, GDP to debt income ratio for the nation at like 20%. Then it went up to like 40%, and now we're sitting at 120% above our GDP, meaning if we took every penny out of the private sector, man, woman, and child, from piggy banks to bank accounts to everything that you make in the private sector, we still wouldn't cover the entire debt for the nation now. And it continues to increase. Now with this continuing resolution, I said that I am optimistic, even though I don't like the extension of uh, current spending levels, but if we can come back with appropriations that are below what they have been and actually get back on track, is it worth it? To talk about some of the sand more, we have our latest in What's Trending. What's Trending Today. Excited to have back on the program. Been a little bit since we've chatted with him. He is the author of the book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Excited to have on the program here, Richard Vague. Richard, how are you, my friend? Uh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. And may I ask what happened to Mr. Rosen? Uh, Mike Rosen actually retired from radio about two or three years ago. And I've I had him on this show actually a couple years ago going into election season. Uh, and he ended up doing a weekend program out in Denver doing like movie reviews and stuff. But he is officially retired from radio now and living the high life. Well, not too many people can do analysis, especially in Washington, D.C. So yeah. He was one of a kind, it sounds like. He was one of a kind and one of the smart. His radio program sounded like a, a college lecture with how smart this guy was. And I was honored just to get a, a just a crumb of that intelligence and what he did. And, and the fact that he sat down and trained me a lot on that uh, led me to be the dork I am on radio today. So we like to have fun talking about budgets and, and taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, but, it, I mean, is it true, uh, Richard? I mean, with, with the, the trend that we've seen from the federal budget up to the point where we actually had federal budgets, 
till now where we just do these omnibus packages, it's almost the point of no return now with how much we've just seen spending increase because there's no accountability to it. Well, you know, obviously the the spending has increased just as you've described it. Uh, We actually have seen a decline in the ratio of government debt to GDP over the last couple of years. It's gone from near 130% to now it's about 123%. So we've had a short-term reprieve. But I I do want to put the $33 trillion in government debt in context. First of all, household net worth is about $160 trillion. So household net worth, net of debt, is like five times higher than government debt. And then, frankly, a lot of that government debt is held in the form of wealth or assets by households. Uh, the other thing that I think it's important, just to, from a perspective standpoint, is that private sector debt is a much bigger number than government debt. Private sector debt, which, of course, is business plus household, right now is about 42 trillion dollars and it's it's been the bigger factor in economic outcomes over the last few decades wow it's why it blows my mind it makes my brain hurt thinking about how much that actually is um when we look at this debt obviously we've seen it climb substantially here is there a way to get out of this or do we want to i always hear this term about quantitative easing i kind of think that's silly personally but uh this idea of we have to live in debt with the nation and with the government in order for them to thrive and actually have the value of the dollar is that really true well let's Take those two things separately because they are, in fact, separate things. One of them, government debt, I think the thing to keep in mind is when government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It actually goes into household checking accounts. So in the three years of the pandemic, which would take us through, this, and, you know, in my little world, that's the three years that ended twenty in December of 22. Yeah. Federal debt increased by $8 trillion. That's the number you were just talking about. Household wealth increased by $30 trillion. So the $8 trillion the government spent mostly ended up in the piggy banks or the checking accounts of households. And the flood of new money pushed up real estate and stock values by another $20 trillion. And that gets us to kind of the $160 trillion number we mentioned a minute ago. So households are a lot better off. The the fly in the ointment, and it's a very big fly, is that most of that benefit has gone to the top 10% of households. Yeah, uh, The middle class really hasn't benefited that much from that increase in wealth. No, they continue to be squeezed, and we're seeing this disparity within the middle class, quote-unquote, with uh, people that are dropping off into the lower class and then a few people trying to rise, but it's very difficult today with kind of how we have this economy set up. Uh, what I guess the question is, what's the solution to that? Because right now, correct me if I'm wrong, 80 to 90 percent of a lot of the tax revenue for the government comes from the middle class. I mean, the upper class does pay their fair share in taxes by a wide margin. But at the same time, the overall revenue from the nation comes from a vast middle class that's disappearing right now. It sure is. And there's a lot of things we we talk about this in the book, but uh, there's a lot of things I think we can and should be doing. Uh, wealth in the U.S. comes in the form primarily of stocks and real estate. But almost 70% of all the stocks and real estate in the country are held by the top 10%, the, 
the startling number to me is the bottom 60% of, of folks in the economy, that's six zero, only hold 14% of the stocks in real estate. So inequality is fairly large and it's increasing. So I think what we really need to do is try to build back that middle class, which you could do through things like tax credits or incentives for stock and real estate purchases. You certainly, you know, as you've just pointed out, those folks pay the most tax anyway. We've got to give them a little relief there. I think there's an enormous amount we can do to boost incomes through strategic job training. But, you know, I think one of the things we've neglected over the last few decades is the middle class, which is the heart and soul of this country. Yeah, that is true. Is there a preference or would it help, do you think, the middle class or just Americans in general if we went with one of the ideas, there's two ideas that really float out there, either a flat tax concept for anybody or corporations at a flat tax across the board or getting rid of income tax altogether and going sales tax and going fair tax style. Would one of those or both of those benefit in any way? The, the concern about sales tax or the you know value-added tax or sales tax or whatever one of those would be was that it just gives Congress an easier path to spending more. I, I think there's value or merit in a flat tax in that, you know, the smartest, the, you know, the top 1%, the top 10%, whatever it is, tend to also be the folks that have the most strategies for paying no tax. So, you know, a, a, a flat tax at the very least, or, you know, a, a mildly graduated tax with the elimination of loopholes at the very least would make sure folks on the upper end of the spectrum are paying fully what they ought to be paying. Yeah, the uh, the the flat tax would be an interesting one. Like you said, the fair tax, I, that's my biggest concern is if we do a fair tax or the sales tax, that, that we would just see a 30% sales tax on everything out there. And then that's what, how we would start finding massive amounts of money on that other front as well. We're talking with Richard Vague, author of the book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity without crisis, which you can find his website, all his content at richardvague.com. Richard, we got to take a hard break here. When we come back, though, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about this federal budget, uh, because now that we have done an extension of the continuing resolution, they're looking at these appropriation bills. They're looking at trying to do some cuts, and some of them are seeing near 30%, 40% cuts in these appropriations in different departments. Will that do anything to the federal budget when we look at it in the context of discretionary funding, which is what we're looking at, and mandatory funding, which is like all the social programs that are essentially racking up that debt for the federal nation. So we'll do that and uh, do that when we come back right around the corner with Richard Vegg. It's a pre-Friday celebration. Got lots more to get to here on The Voice of Reason. Stay right here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Last couple of minutes here on the program as we just try to cram that 10 pounds of reason and common sense into that five-pound bag. Trying to rebrand the millennial generation one radio listener at a time. Multiple radio stations all over the place. We love you to death. Thank you so much for always tuning in to us. Also, the podcast downloads. You guys are killing it. And uh, we love you to death. So thank you so much for that. As a reminder... 
Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene will be joining us on our weekend syndicated program as well. You're not going to want to miss that. We'll talk more about that coming up tomorrow. Right now, though, we're hanging out with Richard Vague, he, richardvague.com. You can check out his website, author of the book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. And Richard, let's talk about this federal debt for or the federal budget for just a moment. We passed this continuing resolution uh, as we work on these appropriation bills. I would really love to see appropriations actually done for the first time in who knows how long. All 12 of them. I know the House has passed about eight of them and some of them with some substantial 35, 40 percent cuts in these areas uh, in each one of these bills. Will that solve the issue as the appropriations really cover discretionary funding as opposed to the entire federal budget? And there's about a 60-40% ratio between the two with mandatory spending dominating the federal budget right now. So while we're cutting these, that's nice. How much of an impact do you think it's going to have on the actual federal debt and total federal spending? You know, I'm not optimistic. Um, You know, we have a divided uh, Congress. We have two parties that have you know, very different, you know, might, you might even say completely different visions about what ought to be spent and on what it ought to be spent. And it'd be one thing if we agreed on what thing it ought to be spent on and just debated how much we should spend. But we have to- totally different visions on what ought to be spent. We have a thousand constituencies surrounding Congress trying to bring new ideas for spending some of which are good ideas, many of which are not. I see a world in which we come up against the debt ceiling and crisis repeatedly, so much so that it becomes commonplace. And I actually worry about the day when we go past just coming to the brink of a debt ceiling and instead get to the brink of a non-payment of coupon on our federal debt. And that's going to be something I think we'll face in the future and we'll be take it to a whole new level. How soon do you think that future is when we start handing ourselves an IOU because we can't pay our debts? You know, it, it, it clearly is a situation that's accelerating. We're not solving this in any major way for any major period of time. So this, this is going to come up every few months into the foreseeable future, unless you get all three, uh, the president and both houses on the same party, I think we're going to see this. And, you know, this is something we could see in the next year or two. Yeah. At the next year or two, that soon, you think? Because that, that's pretty devastating. I mean, we need to solve this. We're, I, I've been making the uh, the analogy that we're no longer looking over the cliff and looking down there. We're the wily coyote that's already over the cliff with the body falling and our head standing there with the sign saying, help me. Like, that's that's the point that we're at right now, I think. Well, it's a political issue because, you know, just to put it in perspective, again, our our debt to GDP ratio is 123 percent. Japan's is 240 percent. So, you know, it's it's not as if a continued level of deficit spending will bring a crisis, but it will bring a repeated political crisis. And, uh, you know, if if we go look at the brink of debt itself and the payment of that debt, you know, I, I I can't even begin to imagine what the consequence will be. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Last question for you, Richard. We got just about a minute left here, but with so much going towards paying off debt, does that make it challenging? Do you think of actually investing in things 
that need to be taken care of in the nation. And with the just mass printing of money with no value behind it, are we going to see a lowering in the value of the dollar? Well, the dollar's held up pretty well because, you know, no matter what we do, the rest of the world's doing worse than we are. So the relative devalue of our currency has continued to hold up pretty nicely. So I, I don't have a concern there. And, you know, the other thing, you know, people lament the high interest rates and the payment of the federal debt. But that, again, that that's money that is income to households. Yeah. So it's more a distribution issue than a crisis issue. So, you know, I, I don't view that as anything. And, and by the way, the other thing I would add is I really do think that uh, interest rates are going to moderate and start to come down over the next one to two years. That would be optimistic. I would love to see something like that. It's Richard Vegg. Go check it out. The Paradox of Debt is the book. RichardVegg.com is the website. Go and check him out. Richard, we appreciate the time very much, my friend. Always a pleasure. we got to do it again real soon. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Likewise. Always appreciate it. There it is. Podcast up in just a bit. Back at it tomorrow for a Friday. Until then, be your own voice of reason. This is the Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.